0: mentioned something, I want to go back to it. I don't know if y'all remember this or not, but I mentioned that there are, uh, I forget what you call these guys, anthropologists, they're scientists that study cultures and things like that. They, around the world, they have documented over 270 flood stories. They call them flood myths, but they're flood stories in cultures around the world. And when I say around the world, I mean the American Indians have them. Uh, the Europeans have them. They're in Lithuania. They're in Mexico and South America. They're in Papua New Guinea. You name it. They are all over the the world. And these stories are somewhat garbled, right? I mentioned one time. I think the one out of China says there was a flood caused between, and it was caused between an argument between a stork and a crab, right? So I mean, they're, they got they, over the years. They've gotten kind of really weird. But here's some statistics I think might interest you. 88% of them say there was, in all of these stories all over the world, 88% of them say there was a favored family that was spared. 70% of them say they were saved by a boat. 95% of them say that the cause of this great catastrophe was, it was a flood. 66% say that the flood came because of the wickedness of man, 67% mentioned that the animals were also saved, and 57% of them say the survivors ended up on a mountain. Now, I don't know about you, but that's pretty good proof to me that there was a flood, right? I mean, when you look around the world, everybody's got these stories about a flood and a boat and a family that's saved and the animals are saved and they end up on a mountain it's, it's I mean, it's just really good evidence that something happened way back in time, and all these cultures remember that. But here's the thing I want to point out to you guys this morning. Even if we didn't have all that, it shouldn't make a lick of difference to you and I. Somebody asked me the other day, did, they, did I think they'll ever discover the ark? Well, I don't see how, to be quite honest with you. It, the Bible tells us clearly that it stopped on a mountain and they got out. Every every ship, and by the way, it's made out of what? Wood, and wood does what? It rots. And every ship that they've ever found uh, in, from antiquity has always been buried in something to preserve it. So the ark, if we were to find it, would have to be buried some way, and the Bible never says that it was. So I don't really think they will, to be quite honest with you. But if they do, great. If they don't, it makes not a hill of beans a difference to me. See, that's the thing we've got to remember. See, for us... This type of evidence is not our starting point. The Bible is our starting point. We believe the Bible is the Word of God. That's where we start. That, that tells us, you know, now if we can find this piece of evidence and that piece of evidence, that's great. Now, I got no problem with that. I think that's, that's all fine and well and good. But the Bible is my starting point. That's what I believe above anything else. And in our particular case that we're studying, when I say the Bible, I literally mean the Word of God in Genesis, okay? And Genesis is no different than Matthew or Mark or Romans or Ephesians or any of the other books that that we find in the Bible. You can't look in the Bible and say, well, I believe all these books are good, but I don't know about that one, right? Right? I mean, this is where we come to today, is that the Bible is the Word of God, Genesis is the Word of God, and that's where we, we start. And so it's not, we're not going to, you know, we may find evidence by studying tribal legends and things like that, that's fine, but we begin, and uh, the facts that we know are found in the Bible, not anywhere else. And I just wanted to point that out as we began. All right, let's open our book, our Bibles, and read to the book of Genesis, Genesis 7. We're going to start in, in verse 11. It says, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, and on the 17th day of the month. Now, I, I read some stuff on this, and, and sometimes, you can, when you, sometimes you can read too much, and you'll just the, the further you read on something, you'll start going down these little rabbit holes, right? And you'll find people that look at those numbers, and they come up with all kind of stuff. Listen, forget all that. Forget all that. Let me tell you what that means. That is not a myth or an allegory. It's not a fable. It's not once upon a time. When God records something, just as he did in Matthew with the birth of Jesus, he says, This is when it happened. I mean, this is history. This type of dating is normal for any historical book, both in in antiquity and even today. This is how we do it. This is when this happened. And so that's the point of this. This is history. Okay, God is going out of his way to say it happened on this particular year, on this particular month, and on this particular day. It's not once upon a time. Okay? It happened at a certain day in history. In the 600th year of Noah's life in the second month on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of heaven were open and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Now, the statement right there that I kind of highlighted In yellow, those are two, those are some very important sentences right there. Because they basically tell us where all the water came from. Okay, and we're going to go into that here in in just a minute. But for right now, let's let's read on. Verses 13 through 20. On the very same day, Noah and his sons Shem and Ham and Japheth and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. Now, let's, let's stop right there. The Bible goes out of its way to tell us exactly how high above the mountains, which is an odd thing, right? It could have just said it covered all the mountains but then it goes out of its way to tell you exactly it was roughly 22 and a half feet above the highest mountain. Now, why would it do that? Okay, I mean, I mean, it's got to be a reason that it, would, that it would tell us that. Well, Genesis, you remember, go back to Genesis 6, it tells us that the ark is how high? It's 30 cubits, right? Y'all remember that? Now, most of the times when you load a boat like that, and they've actually done studies on the ark, on its size and everything, and when you load it, it'll basically sink down about half of its height. So half the heights of 30 is 15. Everybody with me? So if you're going to be floating over a mountain, you need at least 15 cubits of clearance so that you don't, you don't rupture your hull, right? So again, that's, that's, that's a very good thing there, I think. So the ark would require 15 cubits of clearance, and that's exactly what it got. It got 15 cubits above the very highest mountain. So remember, it's going to be floating for five months before the waters start to recede, for 110 days. And so it's going to be floating over mountains, and so it needed the clearance, and God gave it exactly the clearance that it needed. Now, here's the big question. Where, now let me tell you, that is a lot of water. I mean, we're, we don't know that the mountains then, in fact, probably the mountains then, we believe, weren't exactly the same as they are today. But we've got mountains that are incredibly high, right? I mean, we're talking a, an unbelievable amount of water. Well, where did it come from? Okay, well, this is what we're going to talk about today. Now, to understand this, we've got to go back to day two uh, of creation. So we're going to do a little bit of review here. Let's go back to Genesis chapter one verses 6 through 8. It says this, Then God said, Let there be a space between the waters to separate the waters of the heavens from the waters of the earth. And that's what happened. God made this space to separate the waters of the earth from the waters of the heaven, and God called the space sky, and evening passed, and morning came the second day. So what we found, you remember when we went through all this, that on the second day, God creates the atmosphere. He he creates the sky to separate the waters below the sky and the waters uh, above the sky. Now, our atmosphere is what, obviously, we commonly just call it air. And it surrounds the planet, and it's retained by Earth's gravity. And if you remember, when we studied this, the atmosphere plays a, a very important part in the life of this planet. For example, it absorbs solar radiation from the sun so that we don't get burnt to a, a crisp. It warms the, the surface of the, uh, of the planet and it, and it kind of stabilizes the temperature. We don't get too cold and we don't get, get too hot. It reduces the temperature extreme. So the, so the atmosphere is incredibly important for this planet, not only to be able to, uh, to sustain, uh, sustain life. Now, we said when we started the, the study, at any moment right now above our heads... Scientists estimate that the um, atmosphere contains 37.5 million billion gallons of water, okay? And it's all in a vapor phase, right? That's where the rain comes from. Everybody with me? Okay, we don't understand all that, but, but it's up there. Now, that is a lot of water, but it's not that much water when you look. This is a big planet, Right? In fact, I've seen several estimates, both Christians and atheists, that would say this. If every drop of water came out of the sky right now and it rained on the earth, it would basically cover the earth anywhere from one to seven inches. Now, that's a lot of water, but that's not higher than a mountain. Okay, So the fact is, today we know there's a lot of water up there, but it's not near enough to do what happened dear in the flood. So we have to go a little bit further. Let's go look at day three, Genesis 1-9. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was, was good. Now, those are very simple statements, but we pointed out back then when God said, Let that happen we can't even imagine what went on on this earth. Because remember, at that point, the whole earth is covered by water. Remember that? Okay. So all of a sudden, the valleys start to sink, mountains start to rise up, water's rushing off of this place down to another, carving out canyons and, and valleys. I mean, it's, it's an incredible thing that happens. When, and God just says, let it be. Let it be. And the whole earth changes, and the waters gather together into their their places, and, and they're called seas and oceans. Psalms 104, 5 through 8, actually describes this. He set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. The mountains rose. The valley sank down to the places that you appointed. So everybody understand... This is a a cataclysmic event that's going on so that water and the continents rise up, the mountains rise up, water goes to their appointed places, okay? Day 6, Genesis 2, 5 through 6. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist, and some of your translation will say streams or springs, was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Now remember, if you go to Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2 describes day 6 and day 6 alone. Everybody with me? Remember chapter 1 uh, c- covers all the days, and then chapter 2 goes back and kind of gives us a detailed look at day 6. And what it's describing here. It's what the earth was like prior to the creation of man. And what it tells us is there was no rain. That all the plants and everything was watered by these streams or these springs that actually came up through the earth. Okay, So in other words, at this point, there is a lot of water in the ground. Everybody with me? A very high water table in order to produce all these springs and streams and things like that because it's not, it's not raining. So this is what we know... At this point, there's water above the earth in the atmosphere. There's water on the earth in the oceans and the seas. And we also know there's water under the earth, which is being used to water all the, all the plants and vegetations and, and stuff like that. Let's go back to verse 11 and 12 now and see what God says. In the 600th year of Noah's life in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth... And the windows of heaven were open, and rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, what it tells us here is this: there are two sources for all of this water. See, a lot of times when we think about you know, we think about the flood, we think about the rain, right? But we forget that it also says the fountains of the great deep were broken up. So water is not only coming from above, water is also coming from from below. Okay? And I think that's critically important, okay? Now, we're going to look at both of those to see what they mean. So the first one we want to look at is the fountains of of the deep. Now, the deep in the in the, in the scripture when 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 scripture refers to the deep, it normally is referring to the the great deep of the oceans. So The great deep which is broken up here in in this passage is evidently speaking of these great subterranean reservoirs of water deep inside the earth. And they open up and they bring all their out. Now you may say, well, that's, you know, okay, that's interesting and I see that. By the way, I, I, I just Googled this. I was sitting there this morning with a little bit of time. I did a quick Google. In 2014, scientists discovered something. The earth may have massive subterranean water reservoir bigger than all our oceans. Okay? I read another scientist thing says there's a huge underground ocean that could... See, scientists to this day have no clue where our seas came from. They got no idea. They got no, no clue. They still can't figure it all out. So, so now they're finding out, oh, there, maybe there's these huge things of water underneath the, the earth. Well, they could have just read Genesis and figured that out because it tells them that it's there. So there's these, and it's probably still there in in some way even uh, today, and scientists are just discovering that. that, I think that article came from 2014. So you got all this water down in these big, deep subterranean cavities. And, And as they said, even today, probably more water than is in all of our oceans is down in the core of our planet. So how is it released? Well, the Bible just uses the phrase broken up. They, they, they were broken up. Well, what it's talking about here is some kind of great tectonic event. What it's talking about is, is one of two things, earthquakes and volcanoes. Okay, earthquakes and volcanoes. Now, earthquakes... We've, does anybody know what happens when you have an earthquake underwater? tsunamis we've seen that just lately so earthquakes under the under the great deep in these subterranean cavities would have created these these huge well it would have done a couple of things the first thing it would have done is the water level of the oceans would have risen quickly if you'd had a house at uh, alligator point in about 10 minutes it probably would have been underwater because all and you just seen the tides coming up everybody with me so, water is just huge volumes of water are being released into the oceans, and, the ti- and, the, and they're just rising and rising and spilling out and just basically getting anything uh, within that, you know, anything it, it can. It's just overtaking the land. At the same time, as we said, tsunamis would have been occurring. These huge tidal waves would have been inundating uh, the land around them and just drowning anyone uh, very quickly who lived near uh, the bodies of water. Some scientists have even proposed that what one of the things that happened with these earthquakes is that the actual floor of the oceans would have been lifted up. Some, some they've even got some evidence that the floor of the ocean used to be a mile down from where it is today. Now, what do you think would happen with an ocean that, whose floor raised up one mile? Where is the water going to go? It, it's got to go somewhere. And so it spreads out, right? So this would call massive flooding uh, across dry areas. Volcanic activity. Volcanic activity. I don't know if you all have ever seen pictures of, of volcanoes near the water and then when that, vo- when that magma feeds into the water and all the steam is, is coming up. So, so it would have basically superheated this water, turning it into steam, and all of that stuff would have just been busting through the oceans and busting through the crust of the, of the ground... Uh, in, in just these huge geysers. In fact, we still see examples of that today. How many of y'all have been to Yellowstone and seen Old Faithful? Well, that's exactly, you've got underground water, and what, is, what? there's a cavern down there, and it's heated by magma. Okay, It's heated by volcanic activity until it finally gets under so much pressure, it busts up, and it releases the water, and then the water fills back into that cavity, reheats, and I don't remember how many minutes it takes, but... 10, 15 minutes later, it shoots up again, and that's why they call it Old Faithful, because it just does it. That's exactly what would have been going on in that day because of volcanic activity. So all this water coming out of the ground, shooting up into the air, and we still see examples of it uh, today. So that's one thing that was going on. The second thing is it began to rain. Now, I want to answer a question here this morning, because this is a question I think that we, we see sometime, and I... One of the things I try to do when I study this is I try to answer a question as truthfully as I can. And I, one of the questions we, we read just a few minutes ago that on day two before God created man, it said this, God had not yet caused it to rain. Everybody remember that? So the question comes up, had it ever rained before Noah? Remember, 1,600 years have gone by from the creation of Adam to Noah. And has it ever rained on on the planet at that time. Well, some Christians will say, well, it hadn't rained. It says right there, God had not caused it to rain. And a lot of Christians will actually make this statement very dogmatically. Yeah, Absolutely, it had not rained. And there are three passages that they use to uh, to basically back this up. The first one, of course, we just read a few minutes ago. Let's read it again. Uh, Remember... This is in Genesis 2. It's describing the condition of the earth before man was created. And it says this, For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Everybody see that? I, I can tell you definitively, before man was created, it didn't rain. I can tell you that definitively because that's what it says. And a mist or stream and springs was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Now, all that that tells us definitively, is there was no rain before the creation of man. Okay, that's clear. God had not yet caused it to rain, and he hadn't yet created a man to till the ground. But to use that passage to state that rain didn't occur for another 1,600 years, to me, that's a little bit iffy. In fact, if you're going to say that, it has really no more logical support than to say that, well, nobody farmed for 1,600 years. But we know, we know that's not true, right? So all that really tells us is it hadn't rained before man was created. But after man, after the fall, Adam's told to go out and till the ground. We don't know for sure what happened after that. Another passage they use is this one. By faith, Noah, Hebrews eleven seven, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. In reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. What they'll do is they say, see, he'd never seen rain. That's how they'll use that. He was, con- he was warned concerning vents as a yet unseen. And see, he's saying God's warned him it's going to rain. He's never seen rain. Well, that could be true. But that could just as easily just be talking about the global flood, right? I mean, <laughs> it doesn't mean necessarily... That God say, "Hey, hey, uh, no, I'm going to bring this thing called rain that you've never seen." No, God just says I'm going I'm to flood the earth." So I, again, I don't think that's definitive either. One more is Genesis nine, and we hadn't got there yet. After the flood, God comes along and says this, "I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth." He's talking about what? He's talking about the rainbow Now. We know rainbows appear with rain. So if this is the very first rainbow, then this has to be the very first rain. But it doesn't say that this is the first rainbow. God just says, "I've set my bow in the in the in the cloud, and this is going to be a sign." Doesn't mean, in fact, when you come to the New Testament, God uses wine as a symbol, doesn't he? He uses bread as a symbol and things symbolized from this point on, doesn't mean He created them at that point. So the the rainbow may have already existed, and God is just saying, hey, you see that rainbow that I've put up there? I'm going to use that from this point on as a symbol that I'll never do that again. Again, it, the Bible just never says definitively in any way in Scripture that yes, there was rain, or no, there wasn't rain before Noah. Okay, So again, I think we need to be a little bit... Uh, careful. If you believe it didn't rain, I'm, I'm fine with that. If you believe it did, I'm probably fine with that as well. It's not a big deal. Um, but it's not one of those, uh, somebody told me one thing, you know, don't make sure, make sure when you, it's a hill worth dying on, right? This ain't really a hill worth dying on, to be quite honest with you. Uh, we just can't prove it one way or another. So we need to be a little bit careful about being dogmatic about things like that. When you really read the scriptures, you'll see there's not really the definitive proof there um, that, that we need. So just be careful about making that an argument with, with somebody who maybe believes a different way. So let's go back to our question Where does all the rain come from? I'm going to give you three uh, theories. The first one is a theory, um, and it, it's um, uh, called the vapor canopy theory. Okay? Remember what I said earlier. We know there's water up above us, yes? But there's not enough water to rain 40 days and 40 nights. It's just not going to happen. Not today. So something back then had to be different. Something about that had to be different back then. So these are some theories. The first one's called the vapor canopy. Now, according to this theory there was a lot more water in the atmosphere in Noah's day than, the, than there is today. In fact, much, much, much more uh, water. And what happened during the flood, this, water va- uh, this uh, vapor canopy basically collapsed. And that provided all the rain that would have been needed uh, to rain 40 days, these just torrential rains for 40 days and for 40 nights now let me give you a couple pros and cons of that theory the pros are if there would have been more water in the canopy back then you would have had a tropical environment all across the earth are you with me now by the way there's very good evidence that in those days there was a tropical environment all across the earth you remember i told you a few weeks ago that in, 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 I think it's Lancaster County or, or Leicester County, Mon, uh, Wyoming or Montana, they found palm leaves five feet wide. They discovered an alligator in 1890. I mean, it's just like Florida. And in fact, there's very good evidence, and we'll actually look at some of this next week probably. Um, there's very good evidence that there was a time when this climate on this earth was much more tropical. In fact, you can go to Siberia And you can find which which is a frozen wasteland, and you can find animals there that that there's no way they could have lived there in that environment. It had to have been much, uh, much more tropical. So that's good evidence for this. Uh, Another one is this: if there would have been more water vapor in the canopy, a lot less radiation would have reached the Earth, and with less radiation reaching the Earth, you would have people living much longer lives. So you don't have all, I mean, one of the things that we have today with cancer, that's all mutations, right? And a lot of that's caused, you know, not all cause, but there's radiation all around us. And if we'd have had a vapor can to be much thicker back then, it, it would have let people live longer lives. And, and that's exactly what we saw back then. In fact, right after the flood, notice what happens after the flood. People's lives start going downhill. Something changed at the flood that people didn't live that long anymore, and it happened very, very uh, quickly. One of the cons of this, if you talk about, if you read the scientists, anytime you turn water vapor into rain, it releases heat. Okay, it's a it's a change of state, and it releases heat. If there would have been a lot of water vapor and it would have rained that much, scientists say it would have literally created so much heat it would have cooked the earth. They just say that's not possible. So there's some pros and there's some cons. Another theory that's been put forth is there was something called an ice canopy. Um, This would be kind of like, everybody seeing the pictures of Venus. that has got the ice rings around it. It's been postulated that at some point, maybe Earth would have had these ice crystals or these ice rings out there as well, and then they collapse. Something caused them to actually drop down to Earth and that turn into water and that would have created um, uh, all, the, all the rain that you would have needed for 40 days. Um, one of the pros about that is it explains the ice ages. If you go back and look at the science behind that, it actually explains the ice ages. The cons are there's really no evidence for it, and, and it, it couldn't have survived all the meteors that we have coming into Earth. So there's pros and there's cons uh, for that. The third theory, which most people tend to go with nowadays, you remember we talked about the volcanic activity? And so think about all this volcanic activity across the earth and it's shooting all this steam into the air. Well, what happens is when you shoot steam into the air and it combines, it's it's very hot, right? Well, when it combines with cooler air temperatures, what it does, it condenses. And when it condenses, it forms clouds and clouds, of course, create the rain. And so they actually believe if you'd have had that much volcanic activity putting that much steam and dust and stuff into the air, that literally could have accounted for a relentless rainfall on a global scale. And that actually fits very well uh, with this passage. In fact, go back and read the passage. It says, The fountains of the deep were opened up, right? The heavens were open, and it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. Almost like the two... Are somehow combining together to create this rainfall. Now, I got about 13 minutes, so I want to bring this to a conclusion. There are numerous books and articles on this, and I've read, I can tell you, I'm, I'm, I'm about to reach the point where I'm tired of reading about it, <laughs> ready to do something else. Um, they look at geod- uh, geology, they look at radiation. They look at stratification of the, of the layers of the earth. They look at fossils. They look at the continents. They look at the oceans, ice caps, radiocarbon date, and it just goes on and on and on and on. And it's really interesting. Some of the science behind it is, is very, very interesting, and it's a lot of fun to speculate, okay? But in the end, this is all that we know as a fact. This is all we know as a fact. On that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heaven were opened and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. That is a fact. It's a fact, right? I don't care. if All the other stuff is fun and nice to speculate, but this is a fact because this is the Word of God. Now, see, I said earlier, this is where we start. I don't go out looking for evidence and think, well, you know, if I find enough evidence, maybe I'll believe this. No, I believe this because it's the Word of God. The evidence is nice if you got it. If it's not, it doesn't really matter to me. I believe this. So this is the only facts that we have to go on and to stand on. Now, along with that, let me say this. I've read those books. I've got some, I've bought some I've been buying books on Amazon and reading them and and I've read all that. And to be honest with you, I mean I'm not I don't consider myself a dumb guy, but I read those books half the time I got no idea what they're talking about. They're using terms and things I just don't even know what they mean, right? So even when I try to get it, I just sometimes can't get it. I'm just not smart enough to get it. Now, here's what I want you to understand. That's okay, okay? That's okay not to understand that. In fact, it seems to me when I read the Bible that God is much more interested in the why than the how. Are you with me? He's much more interested in why it happened than how it happened. Now, I wrote down, he's much more interested in theology than he is in geology. Okay, he's, not, he's not really interested. He just says, hey, man, I busted up the deep, I brought it from the heavens, and I flooded the earth. Let's move on. Right? That's kind of where he, where he is. Now, here's what I want you and I to understand. We can be excused for our ignorance of astrophysics or geology or microbiology or genetics, but you will not be excused for your ignorance of this word. It's okay that you don't know about genetics. It's okay that you don't understand radiocarbon dating. It's okay that you don't understand genetics and stratification and fossilization. That's okay, but if you don't understand this word, that's not okay. You will be called to it. You won't be called to account for all that. It's not going to be. You're not going to be able to stand before God and say, "God, if I could have just figured out DNA, I, I would have believed." Mm-mm. It's all about this word. In fact. John twelve forty five. Jesus says this, I'm not going to judge you. I didn't come to judge you. The word that I have spoken is going to judge you on the last day. In other words, what he's saying is, I've told you everything you need to know. Everything, you need, every fact you need to know is right here in this book. See, one day we'll stand before God, and it's not all that radiocarbon and fossilization that's going to judge us. It's the word of God. God's going to say, I, I told you right there what I did. Why didn't you believe? And we need to remember that. Let's go to 21 through 23 as we close. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all the swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. Last week, uh, you remember the title of our lesson was the open door, and we talked a lot about judgment. Y'all, y'all remember that that lesson, and you know, and that's that's okay. And we should talk about that because that's part of the story. Is what it's about. You know, when Hollywood made them, how many of y'all seen Noah the the movie? Have any of y'all ever seen that? You know, when when you watch that movie, Hollywood loves that part of it, right? If you watch that movie it was all about the judgment, right? It was all about violence and destruction. If you it was all about, you know, babies being torn out of their mama's arms and families drowning and hanging on. I mean, it was just all this violence and destruction and death. And Hollywood loves that kind of stuff. But here's what you and I have to remember, there's another side of that story, and that is the saving grace of God. Don't don't focus, you know, the judgment is real. So we should focus on that, but don't miss the other side of the story. As there were eight people saved, let's don't lose sight of that. I mean, those who trust in God will be saved. That's grace, right? And we need to remember that. Look at verse twenty-four. And the waters prevailed on the ark. One hundred. I'm sorry. The waters prevailed on the earth. One hundred and fifty days. I thought I'd point this out to you. The Hebrew word there is gabar, g a b a r. And it is a word for a military victory. You would say one army prevailed against another. That's the word that's being used here. The idea here is the waters triumphed, the waters overcame, the waters conquered. In other words, when they came over this, when the waters moved over this land, nothing stood in their way. And we can understand that terminology, right? I mean, you can turn on your TV... And anybody's ever seen the power of a flood? Even maybe if you live down near the water, you've seen it at your own house or you see it on TV, you can take a flood just a few feet deep and it will destroy buildings. It will pick up cars and buses and airplanes and just move them like they're toys. It will destroy everything in its sight. And that's just, can you imagine what a flood that's as high as the mountains uh, would have done? Okay, that is an invincible quantity of water that would have destroyed everything in its path. So it rains for 40 days, and at the end of 40 days, it stops. Um, uh, at some point, the water gushing up from below the earth would also have stopped. It doesn't say necessarily it stopped on the 40th day, but it would have stopped as well. And then for 110 days, the waters of the flood uh, prevail upon the earth. So they're out there floating basically for for uh, for. For five months, 40 days, 150 days, 40 days on the ark, and another 110 days waiting for the waters uh, to go down, they spend on the um, ark. Now next week, uh, we're going to... I haven't made up my mind yet whether I'm going to move to chapter 8 or whether I'm going to stay a little bit longer here and talk about the floods. I'll I'll figure that out maybe tonight sometime. So right now, I'm kind of planning on talking some more about the flood. um, But if you want to read ahead into chapter 8... Uh, you can do that as well. Let's pray.